Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are on location on the Grand Canyon with Lori Jones, a low-temperature geochemist. For geologists, that means that she specializes in any temperature that's below a temperature which would melt a rock. And we're here sitting on the sandy, bushy area, surrounded by cacti and acacia, mesquite. Got beautiful red wall sandstone I'm looking at right now. And then below that, we have a disconformity from Devonian channels. And we are currently in the Bright Angel Shale. We're at mile marker 57 on the Grand Canyon. And we're currently doing the GTS, which is the guide training seminar. So Lori Jones is here and Carl Carlstrom. They are the two geologists that are on the trip. We also have an astronomer. We have Larry Stevens, who's a botanist and biologist and ecologist. Later on, I think we're going to have a snake specialist joining us. And we have members from the Hualapai Nation with us as well. And river guides from all different companies. So we're here learning. We're all here to learn. Sitting here now, and we're going to learn about the geology of the Grand Canyon. But first, Lori, I'd like to ask you about your childhood. Where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I'm Lori Jones Crossy. Jones is my maiden name. And when I was a Jones, I was one of the Jones girls growing up in Illinois. The furthest place you might think of for outdoor adventure. Illinois is a land known for, number one, probably it's corn. I lived north of Chicago in a suburb. And probably the first actual rocks I got my hands on were in the gravel driveways of my neighborhood as an elementary school student. And I would literally sit on the side of somebody's driveway and pick up the stones that were in the driveway. And just they just fascinated me from a very young age. And the other thing that in terms of thinking about how I became a geologist was that I was a very avid reader. And I literally poured through what is probably unfamiliar to many young children today, which was an encyclopedia. And we had encyclopedias when I was a child that would purport to cover everything. So if you imagine Wikipedia today on the internet where you go and ask any question. Back in the day, we would pull a book off a shelf and we would page through it and it would have a section on biology and a section on history and a section on all these different topics. And I would come to those diagrams of a volcano or the planets and I just loved the science. The physical sciences were a fascination to me. My mother was a biologist. My grandmother was a naturalist. She was an early Sierra Club member. We were very close as a family, and we would go out on prairie walks to look at the old uh, trawl grass prairie in Illinois that was really lost as an ecosystem because of the agriculture that pretty much took over the state. So we would go on these prairie walks, and I can still just so clearly remember seeing the very different types of vegetation and the birds and the streams and areas of preserves. So I was always really interested in nature. 
And that was, you know, one of my first introductions to that. And my mother was a very good sketcher, an artist. After school, she had served as an artist to biologists. She had sketched different parts of plants and so forth as an illustrator. That was really an interesting aspect of uh, nature that kind of got to me. But I didn't really think of geology that much at that time. It was more naturalism and just the whole world outside. It was only later, by the time I got to middle school, that I was the oldest of five. And, you know, I had the opportunity to go west, west of Illinois, crossing the Mississippi. That was a big stretch. I didn't cross the Mississippi till I was in high school. Made my way west and went skiing in Idaho with some friends. We also went north to a place on the Canadian border, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area and Isle Royale National Park. It was at Isle Royale that I first saw Precambrian rocks, ancient rocks, and was able to walk these barren, rocky landscapes far in the north, and it was just fascinating to me. So I became really interested in rocks. Lori, Tell us about a close encounter that you may have had in your youth that was a moment for you. You walked away and you learned a lesson, perhaps a close encounter with wildlife. Well, when we would go up to Isle Royale National Park, usually it was in August. It was the very end of the tourist season up there because the winter comes early to the far north. It was fantastic to be with the Spelius family. That was the family. They were just a terrific group of people. They had been going up to that area for a long time. My family, we were farmers, we were in Illinois, and we hadn't really done that kind of thing in my experience. So going up there was being out in the wild for my first time. And it was pretty extreme in the sense that there's wolves at Owl Royal. So my friend Susie, my best bud, she and I would take off from the family and do our own hikes. We would spend several nights out on the trails. I can't even imagine having my daughter go out and just hike away and say, see in four days. Things were a little different back then. And so we would just cruise off on our own and camping out, you would just hear the howling of wolves. And that was the most amazing sound. Even the moose up there, you need to worry about it. It's a concern. You'd mark your camp with some string and tin cans or something like that so you wouldn't get stepped on or riled by a moose. And so that was a very different experience for me, coming from an urban environment of tennis courts and golf clubs and so forth. So it was a place I wanted to be. I wanted to be out there. And uh, that was sort of the beginning. And then from there, going to school, going to college, kind of leaving Illinois, crossing the Mississippi, heading west and then getting into the Rocky Mountains. And from there on, wow, geology, why would you do anything else? When you're out there, kind of, for me, I was in middle school, and for the first time being out, kind of confronted with the wild, we had a game we would play, and we called it Moose and Wolf. So you've probably played hide-and-go-seek, and maybe as a child, where uh, somebody's it, and everybody goes and hides, and the person who's it tries to find everybody, flush them loose like geese or chickens or whatever from their hiding places. Well, moose and wolf was different because there's a lot of moose and there's just a couple of wolves. And so playing moose and wolf, you got the short end of the stick. You were the moose that went out and hid. And everyone else, there might be six other people, they were the wolves. So you would hide. It was a combination of hide and tag. 
you would go out and hide, and there was no talking allowed, no human communication. And we were in a very wild landscape, very cold. Lake Superior, wow, that is a cold body of water. We were at Isle Royal as an island out in Lake Superior. So a very tough environment. And so you'd be out there as the moose, and you'd be hiding, and then the wolves would start to howl as they hunted you. We had to wear some safety equipment because kids were known to jump off of cliffs to escape from those wolves. So it was just kind of a way of being out there and trying to become one with the environment and shedding those human inhibitions. Let's talk more about becoming a geologist. What was that moment for you where you realized this is what you want to study and study for the rest of your life? Well, when I finally crossed the Mississippi and went to school, I went to Colorado College, a school in Colorado Springs, a small school, about 2,000 students, and it has a very interesting program. The classes are just one at a time. It's called the block plan. You take one class for three and a half weeks, and it lets you really immerse yourself in a topic. When I headed out there to go to school, I was very interested in writing and English, being an English major and becoming a writer. I thought that's what I wanted to do. I love reading. I read my way through our library in Illinois, so I thought I would be a writer, and my first two classes I took were writing classes, and we sat in those classes, and I, I don't mean to diminish any particular field of study, but I felt like I had read a lot already, and sitting and talking about the writing, the world was calling outside, and I took a geology class, and it just opened this world, this natural world, which I was already enamored with from other experiences, And I realized, wow, this is hard stuff, and I don't just know it. I don't know it. I can't read it. I need to be with people who understand this subject, and I need some quantitative skills. I needed to take more math. I needed to take more physics. I needed to take more chemistry. But most of all, being with people who knew about that story, that story of the Earth. And boy, I was just hooked my first field trips. Geology can be a very field-intensive kind of study. And so in a case of that with the Colorado College where you had a block plan, it was more immersion into that topic. That's what got me into it. And I never looked back after my freshman year, switched to a geology major and kept on going. Let's talk about what you specialize in in geology, which is low-temperature geochemistry. Well, the geochemistry part is, you know, I have to admit I'm kind of bookish. They talk about, like, oh, she can't see the forest for the trees. I'm kind of a person that likes the trees. I like the details. I like understanding the mechanisms. And it takes all kinds to study something as large as the Earth and all the myriad processes that happen in it. So I just got really interested in the geochemistry. Uh, Geochemistry is about transformation. It's about how one thing becomes another. How does loose sand on a beach become a rock, a beautiful sandstone mesa? It was that story of how things changed on the earth that got me interested in my particular discipline. It turns out that that story of sediment turning into a rock involves water. It involves how water interacts with minerals and interacts with microbes, interacts with life. And it's a very integrative field because you have to take a little bit of everything to understand these processes that happen near the surface of the earth and down to the temperature where rocks melt. It's a pretty broad range, but on the scale of planet earth, we're just scratching the surface. 
We are on location on the Grand Canyon with Lori Crossy, a geologist who specializes in low temperature geochemistry. Lori, let's play a song. What song reminds you of your early outdoor adventures? Well, the song that I think of most when I think of geology and the outdoors and the beautiful Grand Canyon in particular is a song by Pink Floyd and it's called Time. And it starts with this incredible theme, very orchestral. And to me, that is the sound of the sun coming up in the Grand Canyon. And then it has some drums and this incredible, awesome, booming sound. And then the ticking, the ticking of the clock. And to me, the time that is revealed in a place like Grand Canyon, that is the archetypal song for the geology of Grand Canyon is Pink Floyd. Hey there, Mandela here. I just wanted to take a short break and let you know about the clothing that I find myself wearing when I'm recording the trail less traveled and traveling around the world. It's Karuna clothing, handcrafted from natural fabrics, which soften as they age. It's clothing lines that are designed to fit the moods of the places which inspire you. The clothing is designed simply and they use the best fabrics. Karuna Clothing creates their own unique colors. It's strong and well-sewn with love and laughter. With design workshops in Missoula, Montana, as well as Mendocino County, California, all of the clothing is sewn and dyed in the United States, and all of the workers are paid good living wages. They are a young company, but you can already find Karuna Clothing being sold in fine women's clothing shops and boutiques throughout the West. Visit karunaclothing.com to find out more. And now back to the trail less traveled with Mandela. We're on location on the Grand Canyon at Cremation Camp mile 87 just around the corner from phantom ranch and we're on location here with carl Karlstrom and Lori crossy two geologists who are helping us learn more about the geology of the grand canyon for the guide training seminar and tomorrow they're going to be hiking out at phantom ranch so this is our last night to learn a little bit more about the geology of the grand canyon so i'm going to hand it over to you guys and we'll take a little trip through time well what a day it was today we started at mile 65, we're down at 87, and so we didn't cover a lot of miles, but boy, did we cover a lot of time. We started in rocks that were a billion years old, and now we're in rocks that are almost two billion years old. So we're floating back through time, through the chapters of Grand Canyon history. Remind me, what chapters have we covered so far? Well, we started with some of the youngest rocks in Grand Canyon. That was the spring deposits, the travertines that come from the lower world. And then we talked a little bit about the young basalts that cover the landscape further west. So that's the very youngest. That's the very youngest chapter. And then there's the flat-lying layers. We did talk about the carving of the Grand Canyon, the young canyon that's carved into old rocks. 
and how the Colorado River came through five to six million years ago on its way from the Rockies to the Gulf of California, made use of older paleo canyons to find a course. But then what we have to do after you think about this young canyon carved into the rocks, you have to say, okay, what are the stories that the rocks have to tell themselves? So each set of rocks, each chapter, has its own story, or many, many stories, actually. Why don't we start with the flat-lying rocks on top, the Paleozoic strata, which themselves were buried by about two kilometers of rock that have been eroded. So I guess we have to forget that chapter. But the Paleozoic rocks start at the top. And you know the way we remember the rock names? We have a mnemonic device. And the mnemonic device is? Well, starting from the top down, we use the first letter of each rock layer's name. And it's kind of thematic for Grand Canyon. The mnemonic for the flat-lying layers is know the canyon's history, study rocks made by time. Do you think rocks are made by time? Rocks are made by many, many processes, but it takes time, and they reveal time. So time is a good theme for rock. Okay, know the canyon's history, study rocks made by time. Kaibab formation for K, Toroweep for the, Coconino for canyons, Hermit Shale for history, Supai, Redwall, Muav, Bright Angel, to Peets. Study rocks made by time. It's a way for people to remember the names. Who cares about the names? But people, once they sort of wonder about the history, then it's nice to put names on the layers and understand that each one had its own history, its own fossils that are characteristic of that time period. So those rocks record the evolution of life on Earth. The humans are the end of a, well, we're not the end. We're the next stage in a long history of evolution of organisms, starting with single-celled organisms. And then right about the time of the Tapetes sandstone, made by time, Tapetes, along came animal life with great diversity. And the trilobites and shelled-o-shelled organisms and very complex animals. So animals evolved in the Cambrian explosion of life which is the age of the Tapete sandstone. So if you're interested in the evolution of life, the flat-lying rocks are the place for you. You can see the first fishes in the Temple Butte, and you can see the first land plants in the fossils in the, in the Supai group. That's a great story, the evolution of life on Earth. But I actually kind of am more interested in the older chapters, I have to say. What about you? Well, the supergroup was a place that we had the opportunity to spend some time in. And the thing about the supergroup, the Grand Canyon supergroup, it's quite a bit thicker than the flat-lying layers, but it's a little bit obscure to people in Grand Canyon because those rocks are tilted. And you never see the complete stack of rock in any one place. You have to float through miles and miles and miles of river to go float through those tilted layers to appreciate the thickness of the supergroup. But the supergroup records an amazing part of Earth history, and it's a part of Earth history that is a little tougher to decipher because you don't have the advantage of seeing the fossils. The fossils help us understand about past environments, and when the fossils are not there, we are relying on just the physical sedimentary features of the rock. Wasn't there life at that time? There was life there, but, you know, geologists divided the time scale according to different life forms that were found in the rocks. So from 542 million years ago to the present is what we call the Phanerozoic, meaning Phanero means visible, and Zoic meaning life. So those are the rocks that contain 
visible evidence of life. But humans have just evolved such amazing technology that what's visible to us today is at a whole different scale because we're able to use gigantic electron microscopes to magnify things by hundreds and thousands of times. So if you come into the supergroup, you will find evidence of microscopic life. And that was an amazing part of Earth history that was, in fact, the majority of Earth history is dominated by just microscopic organisms. I think we have eight boats on this trip. They range from motorized S-rig, big commercial boat, to uh, ore boats, to uh, dory, you know, very elegant thing that bobs up and down in the rapids to a small, tiny kayak. So we had great runs, and one of the hardest rapids on the Colorado River is Hans, Hans Rapid. It's graded 10 on a scale of 10. You don't get harder than that. It was low water. It was just full of rocks, and every single boat made great runs. We popped out the bottom of Hans, and the, everyone's proud of their success in a very, very difficult rapid where you can flip and you can wrap a boat and you can lose. You know, it's just it's just a dangerous thing running these rapids. You call it Alive Below Hans, ABH. We are now ABH, Alive Below Hans. That's good progress. But to a geologist like myself, I've run Hans quite a few times. And I'm always relieved to make it through safely and with success. But I find these rapids a bit of a distraction. I think that they distract us from the main thing, which is the geology of the Grand Canyon. So we stopped below hands, and I pulled the boatman aside and I said, congratulations on your run. But here we are at the Great Unconformity. This is an amazing thing in Grand Canyon, which marks the boundary between the Grand Canyon supergroup, which we touched on. Life was dominated by single-celled organisms. There were two sequences of rocks. One records the assembly of continents into an early supercontinent we called Rodinia, and the other records the breakup of the continents into different land masses. So kind of a neat record in the supergroup. They've now been tilted, and they're no longer flat. But where that basal Grand Canyon supergroup rock is exposed, that's just below Hans Rapid on the left, it's called the Bass Formation. And here is a limestone. Underneath it is a gravel, or a conglomerate we call it, which used to be a gravel, now turned into a rock. And both of those things sit on metamorphic rocks, schists and granites that came from deep in the earth. And that contact, just a little, you can put your finger on the contact between the metamorphic rocks and igneous rocks below, that is the continental crust, and this package of sedimentary rocks, which has a great story about assembly and breakup of supercontinents. But that contact, when you start to think about it, is quite amazing because the place we were putting our finger on it, there was a half a billion years of time missing, in other words, a huge erosion interval. And in other places, that contact, the great unconformity, can have the Tapete sandstone made by time, remember, on top of 1.7 billion-year-old metamorphic rock. A quarter of Earth history can be missing in the rock record in places in the Grand Canyon, which John Wesley Powell called the great unconformity. So I'm sitting here looking at the great unconformity, and uh, it's kind of moonlit. Well, is it moon? Yeah, I guess half moon. Anyway, there's a lot of natural light, and we see the basement rocks, the Vishnu basement rocks. That's what really got me excited initially to work in Grand Canyon, where these rocks, which are metamorphic, that is, they've been changed in the solid state from their previous state to this sort of gnarly, black, most people would say ugly and uh, complicated rocks, but I find them beautiful. 
And so it's a mixture of these schists, of the Vishnu schist, and the granites, one of which is called the Zoroaster granite. Elegant names given to the rocks by the early geologists because John Wesley Powell's second expedition named the temples and the buttes after the Hindu gods, Vishnu and Isis and Brahma and Raman. What a great legacy they left of these names, but the names of the temples and such have now been given to the rocks. And we're looking at the Vishnu schist, and the Vishnu schist has a layering which is vertical, and I call it profound verticality. And that vertical layering is kind of surprising because a lot of that layering is of bedding planes, which were initially horizontal, but have now been tipped and folded like an accordion so that we have up and down layers in the Vishnu schist that record great squeezing. Imagine accordion being closed, your hands are pushing together, and the accordion folds are folding tighter and tighter. That's what happened when two continental masses, two plate tectonic sense, collided to form this bit of the continental crust. As we float down through these rocks, we're floating through rocks which were in the middle crust, maybe 20 kilometers deep, 12 miles deep beneath the highest peaks, which are now long eroded. So we're just looking at the roots or the guts of an alpine mountain belt or a Himalayan mountain belt, and we're seeing what rocks undergo during plate collisions and the assembly of the continent. I have a theory that rocks enjoy deformation. They never actually told me that, and it's an inference. But my inference is that the pressure, the heat, the squeezing, you know, those are all good things to be squeezed and heated up. So I think that these rocks must be happy rocks. Do you think it's a coincidence that this process is called orogeny, with an O, O-R, orogeny? Now, orogeny means mountain building. And so, yes, it's not a coincidence, but these rocks are happy because they've been squeezed, metamorphosed, and orogenicized. <laughs> so the chapters, let's just kind of go from the top down. The springs and the water in the dissected aquifer, the carving of the Grand Canyon itself five to six million years ago, the horizontal layered rocks, which span the time from 542 to 270, that's three chapters, Below that are the tilted strata we call the Grand Canyon Supergroup, which record the assembly and the breakup of this supercontinent called Rodinia. About a billion years. I told the guys there's one number, there's just one number, only one that they really need to remember for the age of the Uncar group, the part of the Grand Canyon Supergroup. So just one number, really, only one. Do you think anyone remembered that one number? Well, they're pretty good at it, and I think they remember 1.1 or... 1.1 billion, which is 1,100 million. Yeah, the one number is 1.1 billion years. That's a long time. The earliest chapter below the 1.1 billion-year-old Grand Canyon Supergroup, the Uncar group of the Grand Canyon Supergroup, is the Vishnu basement rocks, and that set of rocks are 1.8 to 1.7 billion years old. That seems quite old, but the age of the Earth is 4.567 billion years old. Grand Canyon, although it's one of the most magnificent geologic laboratories on Earth to study Earth history and evolution of life and processes of metamorphism, processes of deposition, processes of groundwater movement, etc. It's a great laboratory. Even so, it records only about half of Earth history, almost 2 billion years of Earth's 4. 
five, six, seven billion year history. But it's enough to keep geologists busy. So we've been working on this geology of the different chapters. So I started working on the basement rocks in the 80s. So that decade for me was devoted to understanding the assembly of the continent of North America. And then in the 90s, I switched to the Grand Canyon Supergroup and the history of assembly and breakup of the supercontinent of Virginia. And then in the last 10 years, I've been working on the carving of the Grand Canyon. Did I skip the Paleozoic layered rocks? Yes, it's quite clear that you are not a paleontologist. I skipped over that chapter because I just can't identify fossils worth a damn. It's kind of humorous because this is a radio show, and Carl was involved in a radio show from the British Broadcasting System. It was the BBC, and they were in Grand Canyon, and he talked about the age of the invertebrates. Well, it turns out that there's not an age in the geologic eras that's known as the age of the invertebrates because they dominate so many ages. And that was something that we had to go back and correct because <laughs> there's an age of reptiles, there's an age of fishes, but there's not an age of invertebrates. So we hope that Mandela will edit out our scientific mistakes, but if not, it's humorous. And uh, I think the BBC edited out the age of the invertebrates. I hope so, anyway. But anyway, if you're an expert, it's always embarrassing to make mistakes. But on the other hand, you can't know everything. Do your best, and you learn about things, and try and integrate different ideas and different parts of the time scale. And the other thing that's amazing about geology is this perspective on time. So a million years really is incomprehensible. A thousand years ago, the Anasazis lived in the Grand Canyon, and the Puebloan peoples farmed the terraces and raised families and had children, and the kids were scrambling up and down these horrendous routes, really, in and out of the canyon. It must have been sort of normal for those kids to be great rock climbers. But a thousand years ago, things were quite different than today. There's so many differences, it's hard to even say. But a thousand years ago is a blink of an eye geologically. A million years is about the heartbeat of Mother Earth. If you live to be 150 years old, your heart will have beaten 4.56 billion times. They say that the first person that's going to live to be 150 is alive today. So that person, whoever you are, when you get to be 150, just realize that your heart has beat the same number of times as the Earth has millions of years in her history. And of course, Earth's got a long way to go. We're all, I bet she's middle-aged, Earth. Don't you think? We've thought a lot about geologic time and the fact that millions of people come to Grand Canyon to look into deep time, to look into this incredible record of geology. And Grand Canyon's not the biggest canyon, it's not the deepest canyon, it's not the longest canyon, but it's the most grandest canyon that there is. Because of the rock layers and the rock chapters that are exposed here, it really is the one of the best illustrations of geologic time on planet Earth. We decided that there wasn't enough description of that up there at the South Rim where five million visitors come every year, and that's people from all over. You know, it's on a lot of bucket lists to come to Grand Canyon. And it turns out that the visitor studies show that the average visitor was only spending literally a few minutes, minutes, looking at the canyon. And the rest of the time, they were distracted by all the things that are happening up there at the South Rim. And so we decided to 
change that and we worked hard to get some resources from things like the National Science Foundation here in North America to put together an exhibit for the public about the geology of Grand Canyon. And so we funded and worked with the park and now there's a trail of time up at the South Rim so that unlike the people down on this trip or the people that are able to take a river trip, there are so many others. There's family groups with grandmother or great-grandmother or little tiny Johnny who's in a stroller or handicap, you know, so this is a handicap accessible trail that lays out the entire history of Grand Canyon up at the South Rim that has examples of all these rock layers and the rock chapters that have been brought up for the enjoyment and education of the public. We proposed this idea to the park in 1995. We said you do not do a good enough job interpreting your major resource, or at least one of your major resources, which is this vastness of space and time and rock that we call Grand Canyon. So 1995, we said, wouldn't it be nice to have a way to convey, to try and convey the deep time to the visitors and get them to think about processes and earth and, and how humans fit into that time scale. So 15 years later, in 2010, the Trail of Time finally opened, and we worked at it for those 15 years. Two and a half million dollars from the National Science Foundation in the early 2000s to build the trails. Took us 10 years, I guess, to convince the park it was okay to do it. And then the last part was after we got the money, we could build this thing. But we're very proud of it. We spent 15 years building it. And now you go on the South Rim, and in every possible language on Earth, you will hear geologic terms. Chinese are talking away in Chinese, but then you'll hear the word unconformity, or you hear the word schist, and the same way with the Germans and the French, and, and they gather around the signs, and especially they gather around what we call the portals. Out of the real rock of Grand Canyon, we made a sort of a model of the three sets of rocks, the basement rocks, the tilted supergroup rocks, and the layered, flat-lying layered rocks, and people go up and they touch them, and they just love the visualization of thinking about deep time in terms of the rock record. The history of the earth is written in rock. So a lot of exhibits in museums and elsewhere use artistic license and they reconstruct the environment. So they actually reconstruct the rock, you know, using beautiful materials and artist renditions and so forth. But we kind of held out and we used things like the river community to help us convey rocks out of this canyon on river trips because again the river flows through each rock layer and we collected what we thought was a the best example of each of these magnificent rock layers and carried them out on rafts so you imagine that you're floating through the river <laughs> you're worried about conveying your passengers and conveying your food and Basically, everything you need and everything you produce along the river, you carry out on a raft. Well, we added tons, literally tons and tons of rock. You know, when you really think about how heavy rock is, it doesn't take that much to actually make a ton of rock. And we took examples in places that were unobtrusive, from tailless slopes, from places where it wouldn't disturb the environment and brought them up to the surface and put them along this exhibit so that everybody can enjoy these same rock layers. 30,000 people move through this canyon in a year. It's just 
it's amazing that the river is just so pristine as it is because of the care and the attention that every person who comes down here takes of this beautiful place. But a lot of people are unable to access this environment. And so for those people, the resource of Grand Canyon is up at the rim on a handicap accessible trail. And there's 5 million visitors to the park up on the rim that are able to at least get a glimpse of some of the amazing rock strata that are down here in the canyon, those different chapters. Powell and others have likened the history of the earth written here as if the rock layers are pages of a book. These are pages of a book to be read, and they have to be a little bit interpreted because not everyone is willing to submerse themselves into the science of geology. It's a little bit of a difficult subject, part because of the language. I tell my students in college that they're going to learn more new terms in a geology class than they learn in a first semester of a language course because we do have kind of a special language that we have developed to describe the subtleties of the way that the Earth expresses herself. One of the fun things in working in the Grand Canyon for 30 years has been the scientific discussion, you could say, sometimes the scientific controversy, and sometimes the scientific arguments. They're kind of all the same thing. Science is a wonderful thing. The idea of the scientific method where you propose a hypothesis and then you have to test it. And if it's not testable, then it's not science. So really you can say, I think this is the way it happened. But unless you can come up with evidence from the rocks themselves, you're entitled to your opinion about how it might have happened. But science will not credit your opinion until there's weight behind it in terms of uh, scientific evidence. Nevertheless, geology is difficult enough that to test hypotheses has engendered lots of good discussion, lots of good argument, and we don't know. We're in the middle of it, of course, and and we don't know if our hypotheses are right, and we propose them, and we mount our evidence and list our arguments and whatnot. Science is self-correcting in the sense that our, our ideas and our evidence will be tested by future workers for a long time to sort of hone in on what is the best understanding of the history of the Earth as recorded in Grand Canyon. And Grand Canyon is just one of many great geologic laboratories. So at the same time, we're studying, say, the Chuar group in uh, eastern Grand Canyon, the evidence of the snowball Earth period just before the first global glaciation and dramatic changes in Earth history. Other people are studying those same age rocks in Svalbard or in Namibia or uh, places where that same geologic time period happens to be well exposed and well preserved. So we'll develop our ideas and we'll say, ah, we've got it figured out. And then somebody will look at the rocks in Namibia and say, well, maybe you didn't think about it this way. It's a self-correcting process, a wonderful thing to watch as scientists argue, discuss, and debate about things and hone in gradually on closer to the truth of how it happened. We'll never get there entirely. There's lots of mysteries, lots of time missing. Geologists, I think, are great detectives. They use the evidence at hand to try and reconstruct what happened. We know a tremendous amount about how Earth has evolved, and yet job security, we have job security. There's plenty to learn. There's plenty for students to sink their teeth into to refine our understanding by collecting new evidence from new rocks in different places. It's a great field to be part of, and my early passion for 
climbing rocks and running rivers has kind of been, I have to say, a little bit supplanted by my passion for understanding rocks and understanding flow of water through rocks. But the one thing led for me naturally to the other, and we still use climbing techniques a lot of times to access remote places, and we still run the river in order to get down here to study rocks made by time. So, you know, just to come back to the chapters and to the relevance, like a lot of times people say, well, who cares? Who cares about Rodinia or these sort of abstract ideas of what happened in Earth's past? But when you think of the different chapters, of course, every resource that we use in our modern society essentially has come from the Earth. And in the deep time, these deep rocks... We have things like tungsten, things like particular elements that are used. Every iPhone relies on somebody's understanding of this ancient landscape and this ancient assembly of continents because it's only in those environments that we find certain types of metal deposits. And then as we move up into the flat-lying layers, we get into our stratigraphy of our aquifer units, the reliance on groundwater. We need to understand those rocks in order to understand what our resources are. And then you come up to the modern landscape, and as you mentioned, the springs and the groundwater. You know, it all kind of comes together when you think about the earth and how we use the earth and how we use the resources. So the geosciences is just such a great place to think about all those different aspects. We are on location on the Grand Canyon just above Phantom Ranch at Cremation Camp, mile 87. I'm on location here with two wonderful geologists, Lori Crossy and Carl Carlstrom. They teach at the University of New Mexico. Carl, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of geology. Well, we haven't talked about one thing that's very interesting, that's earthquakes and seismology. But we have talked about how I'm greatly moved by the science of geology. So how about Carol King's song, I Felt the Earth Move Under My Feet? If you haven't already, go ahead and check out our official website, traillesstraveled.net. You can subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes. We're on location on the Grand Canyon at mile 87, just above Phantom Ranch. We're on location with Lori Crossy and Carl Carlstrom. Lori and Carl, thank you so much for doing this interview with me and going down the Grand Canyon and teaching us so much. You've completely blown my mind. Let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Some tips, some of my favorite ideas and observations from working with a lot of students and colleagues in places like Grand Canyon. Number one, stay hydrated. Drink fluids. That just can't be a bad suggestion no matter what the climate, but especially in the arid southwest. You have to intake fluid all the time. Secondly, those fluids don't do you that much good if you're not eating healthy and eating fairly constantly. So bring food. An army moves on its stomach and to fuel a geologic expedition, believe me, it starts in the kitchen and you just shovel the food out and then people work all day long. Two things are water and food. 
The third thing is that you have to be prepared to be working no matter what nature brings you in terms of the elements. So you've got to have something that keeps you warm and keeps you dry and enables you to work throughout whatever the weather brings. So those are my tips. It has to do with just working and being outside and being comfortable and being healthy. Lori, let's play a song. What song would you like to end the show with? Well, when I'm down here on the river, there's a lot of times where, you know, they say the grass is greener on the other side and you want to get over to the other side. Well, one thing about the Colorado River is it is cold. And so the song that comes to my mind is The Water is Wide. And I particularly like the version that Carla Bonoff does of The Water is Wide. Namaste, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Tonight's interview was recorded in the heart of the Grand Canyon, and I would like to thank my guest this week, Dr. Laura Jones-Crossy. Laura is a professor of geochemistry at the University of New Mexico. She is particularly interested in the interaction of rock, water, and organic materials. If you haven't already, please go ahead and visit the website, traillesstraveled.net. You can also subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes. And if you have the time, it truly helps to write a short review on iTunes in order to help get the word out for this new genre called Adventure Radio. We're also on Facebook, and feel free to contact me, Mandela, if you have any suggestions for the show. My goal for this show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week, for over a decade, I've been interviewing adventurers about what they do and how they do it, so that the community can start adventuring in a similar fashion. My adventure tip this week is to use physics in order to warm your feet. You can use inertia by swinging your feet in order to help the blood get moving. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar doesn't, I mean, it just can't shred itself. (laughs) 